0: I am Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. We're back into the book of Mark. We're going to be in the 12th chapter today, picking up around verse 28. So if you have your Bibles, that's where I would encourage you to be moving to. Mark chapter 12, around the 28th verse, we're going to pick up. Let me set a little stage just to make sure we're all still thinking the same way. Um, Jesus is on the Temple Mount. He's going to be talking to large crowds of people from Solomon's Portico, and uh, that's the setting. We've been in that setting with several groups in the past who've come to question Him, and that's where we are again today. And... uh, so what we're going to start off with is kind of thinking about this. How many times have you gone on the internet and over there on the right-hand side, there's those, those little caption boxes and it says like the 10 greatest this or the, the five best this or uh, rules drivers should know in Wisconsin or ooh, and you click over there on those little things and the next thing you know, you're way down the rabbit hole with Alice and you can't even remember what you were there for in the first place. I was here searching for recipes for you know how to use beef flank and now I find myself over here and study. this happens. All the time, but why is it that we drawn to those? Well, it turns out that human beings, regardless of the era, of the time, of the culture, we find ourselves drawn to the best, the greatest, the biggest, the fastest, the funniest, and we do this all the time. My son um, loves to loves bugs, you know, because he's a boy, and that's what boys do. So he's fascinated with like the ten biggest bugs ever. And so just, ooh, you know, he wants to see the next one, the next one, the next one. What's the biggest? What's the baddest? And, and he loves those things. And, and, you know, if you're hanging around with Andrew Dion, he likes to look What are the biggest ships in the world, the 10 biggest. And he'll want to tell you about how the, the hull is shaped and the aqua dynamics of this. And, and here's how these bolts work and these welds. And the rest of us are like, ooh, yay. But he's having fun, right? So now and so we like those. And then there's the, the, the greatest quarterbacks of all time. You know, it starts with Drew Brees and then the rest of them. And then it goes to... Isn't that fun how I slipped that right in there? So Sometimes we'll think about things. We've got to show the biggest loser, the tallest mountains we like to look at, the, the craziest adventures, the biggest loser. Everything seems to want to come back to the biggest, the greatest, the best, the most fantastic because that's what our mind wants to, to think about. As if everything else is there, but these are the ones you should see. As it turns out, this is no new behavior. This has been going on since time immemorial. And one of the things that the rabbis used to like to talk about a great deal, who is the greatest, what is the best, what is the biggest, what's the most important? So we're going to be looking at some of that today. So here's what we're going to engage this morning. In chapter 12, verses 28 to 37, we're going to find out, at last, a wise Pharisee takes the stage Secondly, we're going to look at this minimum standard thing that's going on, and look at this phrase, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. What was he talking about? What does that have to do? And in this passage, finally, we, everybody say we, we must engage uh, with the two greatest commandments in all of Scripture and what they imply. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's open up in prayer, and we'll dive straight into God's Word. Lord, we just ask that... uh, as we spend some time in Scripture this morning, that you would guide our thoughts or that you would make sure that uh, my study and preparation goes where your spirit would have it go. God, I pray that uh, our minds wouldn't drift, but they would stay directly on these two great commands uh, that you've shared that all of your people across the generations need to internalize and to act on. God, I pray that what we do today brings you honor, and the result of today brings honor to you and transformation into our community. And Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and all of His people say, amen. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 12, picking up on verse 28. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, with all of your strength... And all of, and to love your neighbor as yourself, it's far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. So here's the setting. The book of Mark is written um, during this time period. It's written, by the way, by John Mark. Young John Mark, is his house that the Last Supper was held in. John Mark got to see the resurrected Jesus in his own living room. How cool is that? John Mark would go from, he was a young man at the time, he would go on to follow Peter, who was Jesus' right-hand man, and eventually John Mark would become the bishop in Alexandria, responsible for the entire church in the city there in Alexandria. And it would be around 63 to 66 years in the A.D. or in the Common Era, that Mark would pen the very first of the Gospels, making sure that the message that he had heard and seen and learned from Peter and the other apostles and experienced in his time was shared accurately for people because now the time was coming, the temple was about to be destroyed, uh, the Judaism would no longer have a central place in that old system. Uh, of the law and of, of the Jews, this old system, which was no longer God's system for them, was going to be completely dismantled. Not one stone would stand upon another, and the true temple would be resurrected in only three days. And Mark was wanting to make sure that everybody understood that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that what's, what identifies us as God's people, the true Israel, is our relationship with and in Jesus as his church. And Mark is trying to make sure we all understand that. And the foundation, of course, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So this is where Mark is trying to go. But like all things, um, how do you boil it down to just the minimum standard of what it means to be Christian, what it means to be Jesus I be Jesus' people? So let's set the stage a little bit clearer. In Jesus' day, um, when Jesus was still a young man and early in his teaching career, there was a very famous rabbi known as Halil. And Halil, the rabbi, was respected, regarded, excuse me. He was respected and regarded, admired by Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, the commoner, the wealthy. Everybody respected Halil. And one of the things that, that set him apart is that Halil would take great principles and make it possible for the most uh, intelligent and intellectual and erudite as well as the most simple and common to be able to hear it and to think about it and to put it into action. Halil was famous for this. Here's a guarantee. You ready? There's no way on earth that Jesus didn't spend some time Around Halil. It's not even conceivable that Jesus didn't hear Halil speak in the temple or in the synagogue and that Jesus didn't speak to the people who had been students of and contemporaries of Halil. One of the brilliant things about this, Jesus demonstrates continuity from this man's great teaching and became, in some sense, the next truly great rabbi. People would come and would be fascinated by Jesus' teaching. So let's play this out. Halil is famous for saying this. What you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. And this is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. That's a Halil message. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great sermon? Wouldn't that just be the best? Shannon would already be done. We'd be heading out of here. You'd be cooking up your little Smokies and your brats and getting ready for the Super Bowl. I'm not Halil, sorry. But the cool thing about him is that his teaching style resonated with everyone. Do you see where Jesus picked up on that and used that as a natural way to continue his and to follow with the full truth to the people there? Jesus would say things like, you know, O man, what the Lord requires of you, right? To love mercy, to seek justice, and to walk humbly before your God. He would quote from Micah, and Jesus would say, go and understand this, I desire mercy, not sacrifices, Jesus would simplify things from time to time so everybody could go, think about it, internalize it, and make it happen. Leading up to this moment, though, on the Temple Mount, Jesus has been questioned uh, by several groups of people. Let's see how, how close anybody remembers. What are some of the three groups of people who've come to question Jesus so far? Who, can, who can, Put your hand up so it doesn't get chaotic. Let's try that. Uh, Randall, you got it. Well, who's the first? Sadducees. The Sadducees had come, and they had questioned Jesus. They were concerned about this whole afterlife thing. Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. Uh, They were generally blue-blood, wealthy types, um, and they had come to question Jesus. Okay, another group had been the the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin had come. They are the ruling body, those who consider themselves without sin. (laughs) Wow. Uh, But they had their, their, their court of hewn stones there on the Temple Mount. They also had their whole city over there, which was the city of unripe figs also known as Beth Thage. there we go or Beth page if you want to say it like a Westerner um, but the city over here uh, their their court was the city of unripe figs or or people who have no sin could be on the Sanhedrin another group who questioned Jesus were the yeah his 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 the Pharisees Yuck. the Pharisees had come these were the commoners who had educated, elevated, had moved themselves up in life, and they were the lawmakers. They were the the, uh, the incredibly arrogant, rigid, legalistic, fundamentalist types who were always ready to whack you over the head with their rules, okay? And another group who had come, anybody remember even, even more specific? Another group had come. They were the, the Herodians, okay? These are the sellouts, the traitors who were Jews in name only, right? Yeah. They were, they were Jewish by ethnicity, but their lifestyle was Roman. All of these people had come and they had all failed over and over to trump Jesus, to stump Jesus, to make him look the fool. They just couldn't make it happen. And so now this person comes up to speak this last one. And the scripture tells us uh, one of the scribes approached. Now, be careful. Here's what we do. We're human beings, right? Everybody? We're all in this. I mean, unless somebody barks at me here real quick. We're all human beings. Here's what we do barks. Where did that come from? What's the matter with me? Here's what we do. We fill in the blanks. This is, this is our habit. Here's what I mean by that. We see somebody, they come walking up, and we look at the clothes they're wearing. We look at the race they represent, uh, maybe the socioeconomic class they may be coming from, um, you know, maybe by their accent, what they drove, what we know about them, what kind of job they do. Um, so we fill in the blanks for who that person is. Based upon what we have generally learned, we make assumptions about people. And so when they come to say something to us, we're going to meter, we're going to create kind of a a framework, a lattice for what they're saying, and then we'll fill in the blanks where they didn't tell us anything based upon what we think we know about them. You guys are familiar with this, right? This is called storying. And what we do in storying is we provide the information they didn't provide for us. And we make this assumption because generally speaking, this is a safe way to do things. If somebody comes walking up to you and they've got an angry face on and they're kind of wearing the, you know, uh, 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 white supremacist clothes here, you know, and they've got a little Nazi thing on their, on their lapel and they're walking up looking kind of angry and all. And you can tell there's a, maybe a gun under the jacket or something. My first reaction is this is probably not a friendly person. And they're probably not gonna really enjoy coming over and spending time with us or our black friends because they may have some pre. So I'm gonna make all these assumptions. And then they walk up to you and they're like, hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm in costume here because I'm in a play over here at the Third Avenue Playhouse and I hate the character after play, but I'm really thirsty to where I can get a drink of water. Okay, I had all these assumptions I played in ahead of time and now I've been proven my assumptions are wrong. Are we tracking? Okay, now take my ridiculous example. And let's really get to something that we do. The scribe comes up to ask Jesus a question. What's our automatic assumption based on the last several groups that have come up here? What do we think is about to happen? Okay. And our, our, our expectation is he has nefarious intent when he comes walking up to... Uh, nefarious means bad or mean or evil or something. So when, they, when, the, when the guy comes walking, walking up to Jesus, we automatically assume that must be what he's going to do. He's got bad intention. He's going to try to trip Jesus up. He's nasty. He wants to make a fool of you. We pretend somehow in our mind that we're so smart we could fill in the lattice with the rest of the story. Can I challenge us all on that for just a minute? I want to go back about 1,800 years to some of the early commentators who engaged this. You see, their point of view was that when this scribe was coming up, we need to understand what a scribe is. A scribe is not necessarily a Pharisee. They might become one. But here's the scribes. They are students of the law. They are deeply devoted to understanding the law and all of its nuances and its historical place and putting it in order. They're not necessarily a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a Herodian or definitely not a Herodian, right? Not necessarily connected to the Sanhedrin. They may be wealthy. They may be common. They can definitely read and write and write well. They record conversations and laws. They sit there in the, in the Sanhedrin's court and they, and they take notes and they go back and they compare them. If we were to draw a parallel to today's culture and how we live in, in the United States right now, you might say there are uh, there's the judicial branch over here. And then you've got the executive branch, and you've got the Congress, and and then you've got... They're they're all over here, and some are left-wing, and some are right-wing, and some identify this way, that way. And then over here to the side, there are these constitutional scholars. And they're not necessarily aligned to a party. They love studying the law and the Constitution and knowing it inside and out. Every single dotted I and crossed T and this common, what it means. And uh, these are those constitutional scholars. Friends and neighbors, this is what the scribes were. Our assumption is that he comes in the pejorative to attack Jesus, to be mean, to create another stumbling block. Can I recommend something to us, though? And this is just Shannon. This isn't on the page of Scripture, so I'm going to step beside the Scripture for just a minute. Can I recommend we engage it a little more um, optimistically at this point? What would you say if I told you what I think? That this scribe is something of a peacemaker at this moment. That he's been on that Temple Mount. Friends, he's watched thousands of people gather. In the temple to hear this great rabbi teach and teach with brilliance. This rabbi has healed people. He brought the dead back from life. This rabbi fed 5,000 men along with their families. So we're like 15,000 people got fed with a couple loaves and a few fish. <laughs> he, he gave sight to a blind person. A layman man gets up and walks. He's cast out demons and he's been doing this all over the land for the past several years. And his teaching is just Fantastic. And this scribe is well familiar with Jesus of Nazareth. And he's been watching as Sadducees and Herodians and Sanhedrin and Pharisees have failed in their attempt to try to trip up Jesus. And he sees all this division and all this tension and all this hatred and all this polarizing and dichotomies everywhere you look. And so I like to imagine he walks up and he says, hang on, hang on, goodness. Hey, Rabbi, what is the greatest of all the laws?" a.k.a. we all believe in the law, all of us. You're on this side and this side and this approach and this approach, and we've, we've all been coming together. And There's thousands of people who are loving him and, and interested in him and all the Messiah and, and all the Son of David and, and all, all these things that have been said. Hosanna for just a minute. Rabbi, what do you say the greatest commandment of all is? I like to think that this person came to the middle and said, hey, look, 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 look got a lot of divisions, but what could we what could we boil it all down to? What is the most essential thing that on that Temple Mount, all of us as the Hebrews, as the Jews, all of us bear in common? And together, What could we say is the lowest common denominator, the point at which we can't boil it down any farther, and we can at least all agree on this, peacemaker. I love the idea that the ancient scholars had that this scribe was stepping in to be a peacemaker. Listen, if we approach it like that, and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest of the laws? The thousands of people who are already fans of Jesus are going to be excited to hear it. The Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, they may all stand like this, but... Now, okay, we all agree on that. I believe that's what this scribe was seeking to do. Can we, can we use our imaginations to do that for just a minute? By the way, prove me wrong. Got Got anything? It's unfair. I know you're saying, kind of being a straw man here, but but the reality is, you can interpret the scripture's moment with that lattice just like you could by filling in the story with he's a hostile, just like the others had been. But doesn't it make a huge difference if that person who came walking up to you in that offensive outfit I had defined for you a little earlier actually wasn't what they appeared at all, and their motives were not nefarious, but but genuinely to be a peacemaker, genuinely seeking to bring peace into that particular moment wouldn't that be a great thing in our world today if there were more peacemakers and less people who are trying to divide us so at this moment up comes this this particular uh question and he asked what's the greatest of the laws so let me set that stage for you at the time of jesus um here's what they had in their hands they had hey let me say this hey girls thank you for doing coffee this morning i really appreciate you coming in early and doing all that thank you 613 laws were in the Torah. And the rabbinic tradition had been to study and to know and to implement all of those laws. Of them, 365 are negatives. The negatives are don't, 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 don't. And then the others were 248 do's. Yes, do this. Don't do that. Yes, do this. That's how the law was made up. But in addition to those, there were 6,000 extra little statutes that had been added by the Pharisees and approved by the Sanhedrin and enforced on the people. That 6,613 little things you got to do in order to be good and Jewish at the time. What? That's insane. That is ridiculous. That's too much for anyone to be able to do. You can't keep up with that. But here's the purpose of those laws. Those laws provide, uh, shall we say, God's laws provide guardrails. They provide some fences for us to stay in and have some freedoms. As long as you're within those freedoms, there's safety and security and all goes well. But if you keep moving the fences in so far, there's no freedom anymore, and it's just rigidity, and it's fear, and it's oppression. You feel me? When I was a youth pastor, here's, here's how I used to do things. Um, I didn't do the, the, the don'ts. So when we went off to camps or trips or retreats or in our youth groups, we had the list of do's. Okay? And I liked my list of do's. It was fun. Uh, by the way, this is before millennials, and so we didn't necessarily have the continual argument over every little nuance. But, 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 and I'm not ripping on millennials. I love you guys. You just think different. But one of the things about the list of do's worked like this do be at breakfast each morning at 8 o'clock with a good attitude. Do be respectful of people who want to sleep after 9 o'clock. Keep the, you know, do keep the noise down. Do leave your cell phones and Blackberries at home blackberries you don't have anymore back then we did Uh, i'm reminiscing Uh, do uh, be five minutes early to any particular event so that you're not accidentally late do be kind to one another do tell the truth do respect authority do stay with them so we had the do's. You, you with me so far it's not complicated here's some things i didn't have i didn't have curfews i didn't set them i just didn't there was no need why because they knew what to do And so what we said was, you could be up as late as you want, but you do have to be at breakfast at 8 o'clock with a good attitude, okay? You do uh, have to be uh, friendly and great. You do have to respect those who want to be asleep. You do have to stay in the girls' dorm if you're a girl, in the guys' dorm if you're a guy. You do have to obey the rules of the camp. So why did we need a curfew? We didn't need it. You see, I gave them nice, broad rules, like that 613. It was a little broader, I didn't need to narrow it down to 6,613 because they knew. So here's how this played out, right? Um, who can I pick on today? Uh, I'll, I'll pick on Jane and Glenn, okay? So let, let's say it goes like this. So uh, the rule is you got you to gotta respect... the to people who want to sleep after 10. And here it is at 10:30 and the hurlots are over there just laughing it up, yucking it up and having a big time just telling jokes to their friends and they're just howling and, and they're disturbing everybody else. And by the way, I left food out all the time. 24/7 we had food out. Our, our kitchen mamas made sure that anybody could eat at any given time because they're teenagers. Right? And so there was always food out. Now, I had, there were hundreds of teens I worked with, so don't, you don't do that in all of your smaller youth groups, bear with me. But they would always have food out and they could always eat. But let's say that, that the Hurlitz, they've gone over there and they've eaten all the peanut butter. There's no peanut butter for anybody else now. And they've been double dipping on all the nacho dips, you know, because that's how Jane is. You know, and, you know, can't do fondue with the Hurlitz. So they've, they've, they've messed all that up. So now here's what I got to do. Thanks. Here's what I got to do now. Now I got to make a new rule. Okay, I got to narrow it in on everybody. Okay, I can't leave the food out all hours because apparently you don't know how to look after everybody else and you've eaten all the peanut butter. Fine. Okay, and we can't have this no curfew now because these guys are abusing it. So curfew's now 10:30, and uh, I'll wake you all up at six in the morning with a trumpet or something. It'll be wonderful. Uh, but now because you've violated rules, I have to tighten the restrictions. Everybody's minds getting around where we're going right now. The hurlets are no good. That's where we're going with now. What we're trying to get our minds around is this. The the guide rails, the rules are there to keep us from sin. Okay? To keep us in 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 the right narrow. But if we can't discipline ourselves, we have to keep tightening them up. The other reason rules get tightened up is because people want to control you, to own you and, and treat you like you're incapable. I felt like our teenagers deserved an opportunity to discipline themselves. I felt like when they come out of our student ministry, they should be able to go off to college and already have good principles and good self-discipline instilled in because we provided that to them. I also had a little something. I'll say this on the side just to defend myself. Uh, whenever we went on a trip, I always had a return ticket. Remember these, Kim? Uh, I, would, I would always buy an extra couple bus tickets or an extra couple plane tickets. And, oh, I wore them out too. And sometimes they weren't real. They were just from the last trip. Uh, But I would say, and if you break the rules, you do go home. We're not having that. You pull a prank, you're on an airplane. You're out of here. I will send you back from Brazil. I will send you back from Venezuela. I will send you back from California or Kentucky. You're not ruining it for everybody else. One strike and you're out. That's how we work. Fun? Yeah, good. Do have a good time. And very seldom, seldom did I have to use them. But once you did, it didn't happen again. Can you understand the rules of the Old Testament now? Do you see what God was trying to do? These keep you in line. They make it safe. We boil it all down to, to just a few nice wide roads to drive on, to be a Christian on, to be God's people on. If you can't be disciplined, I've got to tighten it down and you have less freedom and you're more restricted. The Pharisees had restricted people so much there was no joy in being God's people. They weren't growing up with self-discipline. They were growing up in fear and rigidity. That's no way to raise a nation. That's no way to run a railroad. And what happens is everybody who does it now, they're going to operate here. And as soon as you take the restrictions away, they're going to go crazy. Parents, turn off the helicopter. If you stay right over top of your kids with your little tail rotor too, they don't know how to make their own decisions. And as soon as they have any freedom, they're going to go wild. Because they've never learned how to be self-disciplined. That's why you treat a 4-year-old differently than a 14-year-old, differently than a 24-year-old. You see, you give opportunity with good rules, and you can open the fences. But if you, if you raise them like this all the time, it bounces back and forth. They don't know, what, they don't know what, what to do with discipline. If you raise them right here, they don't know what self-discipline is. The Old Testament had these incredibly strict rules and incredibly strict penalties. Because it had wide open roads for God's people to operate in. How many commandments did Adam and Eve have? How many commandments did Adam and Eve have? One. Well, that's pretty cool. What was it? Yeah. No to this tree. Yes to absolutely everything else. And what did even Adam do? What tree? It's human nature. That's the greatest. I got to go eat off that tree. It must be the best. With that in mind, let's think about this. The rabbis come and he's asked that question: What is the greatest law? If we can break it all down to a minimum, Jesus, and we can create a really wide road for all of us to be able to agree on, whatever our nuances and cultural and racial and ethnic and financial differences may be, Lord, a great teacher, what is the minimum we can all agree on? The nice wide road. We're still on the road. We're not in the ditch yet. We're still on the road. What's the minimum, Jesus? Jesus responds with the Shema. And what he does is he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, your soul, and your strength. And you, the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And when the rabbi hears that, I like to imagine he looks to the, the scribe, looks to all the people around him, and he says, You're right, Lord. You're right, teacher. Everybody, can we agree? And he, and he says, Oops, go back there. And he says, you have correctly said that He is one and there is no one else except Him. And to love Him with all of your heart and all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see, see this teacher, this scribe, he had been at some of other, the other sermons Jesus had preached already about how he desires mercy rather than sacrifice right out of Micah. And, and, and he says that to the people. Uh, this scribe had been hearing Jesus, and he remembered. He probably wrote it down and pulled out his notes. He said, do you remember three weeks ago when it was overcast that day on the side of the mountain? You said, what's brilliant about this, he's trying to unify the people under at least the minimum standard. Quiz. You ready? The first church council, the very first one, way before the Vatican, way before Nicaea, there was the Jerusalem council. You remember this? And the Jerusalem council had to settle a question. It was, what do the Gentiles have to do to be able to be a part of the way, the faith? What do they have to do? And the Jerusalem council is struggling with this, like, man, do they have to do the circumcision and grow their hair out? Uh, do they have to wear the veil? Uh, do they have to learn to dress Jewish and speak Hebrew? Do they need to, to memorize the law? What do they got to do? And, and they, they, they boil it down to the least common denominator, okay? And some of those include quit eating meat offered to idols and stop it with the sexual immorality, They had to give them some minimum standards to operate under, at least under this, okay? At least this, to be able to be a part of the church of the way. Make sense? Hey, we do it too. And this rabbi, this teacher, excuse me, this scribe, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw the people together. But here's the brilliance of this moment. When we hear this, we just hear the law. And we hear him say, love your neighbor as yourself. But let's understand what they heard 2,000 years ago as Hebrew people on the Temple Mount in Solomon's Portico at this moment during the Passover with all the great teachers gathered in one place, and they're all listening to Jesus instead of doing their other teaching. At this particular moment, they heard the Ten Commandments. Remember those, the Ten Commandments? We used to have them all over our nation. We We publicly put them in front of our courthouses. We had them in our schools. We agreed this is the minimum standard for what it is to be decent people in the Judeo-Christian ethic. The first five of those commandments really have to do with the way that we see and understand and honor and love our God faithfully and above all others. The second five of them have to do with the way we engage with our, with our fellow men. You remember that? Five and five, two tablets. God had to break it down to just that. Remember, when Moses went up on the mountain the first time, he had a lot more commandments from God, a whole lot more that God had shared with his people. But Moses goes down the mountain, and what's he find the people doing? Come on, you good scholars. I know you know this. They're all dancing around a calf. What the heck, a golden calf? Are you crazy? You're worshiping an idol? God's on the mountain with Moses. You're worshiping an idol? Please. And Moses is furious, and he smashes him against the ground. He goes to go back up the mountain, and God's like, well... That was productive. You know, you've been up here for days carving that. Temper much? You're going know, to smack a rock later. We'll see how that ends up for you. Okay. So he comes back down with just 10 this time. Okay. All right. Let me break it down to just this. Gosh, you can't live here. I'll, let me open up this for you and give you just these ten. Five here, five here. If you can have your mind around that, this is what Jesus has just done. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Excellent. Can you understand that? Can I tell you it's even more intense for them? Because when Jesus said, Love your neighbor as yourself, everybody on that Temple Mount heard Leviticus. He's quoting out of Leviticus. He's quoting directly out of Leviticus chapter 19. And here's some of the things that were in Leviticus chapter 19 that talked about loving your neighbor. What does that specifically look like? It looks exactly like this. Uh, Starting up around verse 10, you are to care for the poor. You are not to steal. You are not to lie. You're to be fair in business dealings. Uh, Verse 14, care for the deaf, care for the blind, Deal justly with everyone, even people who aren't of your own Jewish ethnicity. Avoid slander. Do not jeopardize the life of your neighbor. That means don't sell a product you know is dangerous or might be. Don't sell them food that might be contaminated. Okay. Don't sell them broken farm equipment. Whatever. Uh, don't hate your brother in your heart. Uh, verse 17, rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his good and your good. And don't take revenge and do not bear grudges against others. Friend, if you love God supremely and you love your neighbor supremely, this is what loving your neighbor looks like. So who's my neighbor was the question somebody asked at that moment. And Matthew recorded it. Mark didn't record this part, but Matthew did. They said, well, who's my neighbor? It might have been that rabbi. I'm sorry, that scribe may have said, and who's our neighbor, great teacher? And Jesus gives them a parable. You remember the parable? What was it? It's the Good Samaritan. And he gives this one. And when he tells the Good Samaritan, all these good Jewish people are going, whoa, hang on now. Preacher done gone to Medlin. We're not going to have that. Sorry, Southerners think that's funny. You guys have no idea what I'm talking about. So when, when, he, when he says this, the good Jewish aristocracy are saying, you're criticizing us. We don't want to have anything to do with those filthy Samaritans. They're traitors. They're nasty. They're horrible. The Herodians are like, hey, 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 those are my peeps. These are our friends. Don't be trashing on us about that. And then the Pharisees are hearing him rip on on the priest and the Pharisee who had gone by. Everybody was guilty because they were dividing themselves, parsing themselves up, hyphenating themselves. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Your neighbor is your brother. Your neighbor is anyone else. And you love them as you love yourself. How do you love them? Everybody immediately started to think of Leviticus 19 and what loving your neighbor actually looks like, except for the Jews. They thought my neighbors were other Jewish people just like me, and Jesus messed with them and made it Samaritans who were Jews who lived like the people in the rest of the land because they've intermarried. You see in the complexity of this moment, can we break it all back down to the most simple again though, just like Jesus did? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the the scribe at this moment says, You're right. And Jesus responds to him, You're not far from the kingdom of heaven. I wonder when Jesus said that, it's one of those things where you're talking to one person, but you know everybody's listening. I wonder if at that moment it's Jesus' way of saying, Hey, hey gang, hey gang, you're not far the kingdom of heaven if you can hear it if you can hear the shema and you can hear that second commandment if we can all agree sadducees sanhedrin herodians pharisees scribes if we can all agree to love god supremely and love our neighbors ourselves you're right there it's just one more step to understand that jesus is the messiah the son of god you're right there this is a culminating moment this is, this is the point where the fine tip has been put on it. The road is established. You're in or you're out. And no one dared question Jesus anymore because now there was nowhere to hide. Any other question, any other challenge or attack would have to come within the framework of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is remarkable. And this is what Jesus has brought it to right here at the end of chapter 12 on that temple mount. So now the questions will change over uh, and they'll come over to more specifics about the Messiah um, and warning against the, the corrupt scribes and, and talking about giving in the temple and temple practice. It'll be more fine pointed at this point. But this is where Jesus is of Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we in the 21st century, how do we engage this? Let me draw your attention back to Corinthians for just a minute. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is is trying to uh, instruct his rebellious church over there in Corinth. Um, It's kind of like the American church, by the way, Corinth. So you could say uh, some of the speakers at the men's conference yesterday had referred to this as as First Californians because it's so common with the way we think and behave as Americans. Everything is permissible, wide road, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No is to seek his own good, um, but the good of others instead. Remember why the hurlots over here ruined it for everybody? They were only seeking their own good. They're having their own joke. They're eating all the peanut butter, you know, being loud. They ruined it for everybody. Were they operating within the freedoms that they had? It's not a trick. Were they operating within the freedoms that they have? Yeah, bad hurlots. But here's the thing. If the bad hurlots had thought, all right, it's, I can do it, but it's not beneficial to everyone. It only benefits me. And I don't love them as much as I love me. and I'm not obeying the general reason for my freedom. So I'll make a decision based upon what is beneficial for all. Now, good hurlots, because they have taken the road less traveled. It's the high road. I'm still within the bounds. I'm not pushing the bounds or abusing them. And therefore, I've made that decision because I love others as much as I love myself. By the way, I think that's what the Hurlitz would do anyway, right? At least, at least Glenn. <laughs> so if everything is permissible, but not all is beneficial, what do Jesus' people seek? The permissible or the beneficial? You see, we love others as much as ourselves. So there's less need for all these rules. They can be like this. We tracking? Isn't that fun? That's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. Jesus is not a legalist. Jesus is not a rule fanatic. Jesus is not a cosmic killjoy. Jesus is all about helping us understand the we. We all said a little bit before. Remember that? I asked you to say we, and you said we. Americans love rugged individualism, don't we? Me, my, my rights. I did this. Pull myself up by my bootstraps. Did it. I'm a self-made woman. We think this way. This is, this is how we act and this is how we behave. But Jesus's people need to see things in terms of we. We, the body of Jesus. We, the bride of Christ. We, the family. We who will live for eternity together in a perfected earth with God dwelling amongst us just like it started in Eden where it was very good with no more sin nature. No more need for rules. They don't need to exist because we love God totally and love one another even more than we love our spouses now. How amazing is that going to be? When there's no sin nature, when there's no sin but only love, what an incredible world we're going to live in. That's where we're destined. This isn't about I and me. This is about we, God's people, Jesus' bride, and that's how we make our decisions. Now, Daniel and Catherine, as you guys come up to start to play again, um, here's where we need to go in what we're going to refer to as um, uh, a time of contemplation or focus, okay? Some questions come about if we really start to think about loving God and loving our neighbors. We have to do a little bit of a soul searching because, you see, when... You truly believe something in your heart, just like the cup we held up earlier, remember? When we believe it in our heart, then our actions, the bread, will follow. You see all that imagery? Jesus is pretty smart, isn't he? So in this imagery, some questions that we should be engaging. First of all, what defines you? Brothers and sisters, what makes you you? Okay? Another question we might engage is, to what are you personally dedicated? Completely, this is me. I'm all in. Bought in, sold, complete, sold out. This is who I am. And then third, over what are you willing to suffer loss? What's worth the investment even if it costs you something? These are those questions that get down to motive. They get down to reason. They get down to what do you love most? So at this point, I'd ask you to close your eyes, to bow your heads. Would you just get with God for a moment? Don't worry about the folks around you. I just want you to focus on yourself and God for a minute. For some of you right now, I want you just to imagine this time in front of God. There are no rules or barriers or fences, it's just you and the tremendous freedom of being in Christ. I want you to imagine this moment. Christ asks you, child. What would you say defines you? Who are you? Jesus asks you that. Who are you, daughter? Who are you, son? What is it that you love supremely, that you invest your time, your talent, your treasure into? Who are you? Friends, to what are you personally dedicated? At a minimum, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus and God are one, and His Holy Spirit resides in you, what are you personally dedicated to? leads us to that last question. What are you, over what? Are you willing to suffer loss? Oh man, those followers of Jesus knew that following Him would cost them. If our identity is in Jesus, if we love the Lord our God with all our soul, our heart, our mind, our strength, our finances, our friendships, our jobs, our vocations, our neighbors, our reputation, what are we willing to suffer loss for the name of Jesus, to be faithful to Jesus, to be consistent with his teaching. Do you love him above all else? And do you love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself? What does that mean now in how you live out your faith? Father God, we've gathered here this morning. We've We've been honored, really, to read what John Mark took the time to record. Lord, I thank you just for your Brilliance in that temple court that morning. God, I thank you for how well you engaged each of those people who came to question you. I thank you for that scribe. God, we can't tell 2,000 years later if his intentions were pure or hostile. We just don't know. But God, today we've imagined that perhaps the lattice on which we've filled in the blanks was one of a peacemaker person who was saying, Lord, at a minimum, where do we start? We, we come as we are and we grow together, but Lord, can you tell us where the starting point is? God, thank you for him. God, thank you for the, the way you answered. Thank you for the early church living at peace with all people, demonstrating what it is to love God supremely and love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, may that be the message of Sturgeon Bay Community Church. May that be said of us, that when people see us, they see love. And that's how the community becomes transformed. So, God, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our friend. And God's people all say together, Amen. Would you stand?